You're listening to The Wave, a podcast by the British Virgin Islands' leading newspaper, the BVI Beacon. This week on The Wave, we talked to reporter Joey Waldinger, who will take us behind the scenes of an investigation that took more than six months to complete. Joey, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Zareen. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. First off, can you tell us how you started working on this story? My journey with this article started last July at a press conference in Roadtown. There, BVIEC officials announced that the Maryland-based firm Power 52 Clean Energy Access had been awarded a $4.6 million contract to build a solar plant on Anagata. The firm, led by a Maryland solar developer named Rob Wallace Jr., had been chosen over two Virgin Islands-based companies that also bid on the project. During the press conference, BVIEC officials assured the public that Power 52 was the clear winner following a transparent and fair tender process. But shortly thereafter, that claim was disputed by one of the four losing bidders, Virgin Islander Henry Creaky, who had worked at the BVIEC for 27 years before retiring to run in the 2019 election. I know that The Beacon and other media outlets reported on Mr. Creaky's complaints at the time, so why did you decide to dig a little deeper? Well, $4.6 million is a lot of money, so there are a couple questions that we felt needed more attention. One, was the bidding process as transparent and fair as the BVIEC claimed, or were Mr. Creaky's criticisms on target? And two, who exactly is Rob Wallace Jr., and is he a good bet to receive millions of dollars in taxpayers' money? We felt that these questions were especially important as previous government collaborations with foreign partners have squandered millions of dollars. The BVI Airways project, for example, cost taxpayers $7.2 million for an airline service that never materialized. And before that, several million went toward greenhouses that never operated. After such expensive failures, we know that Virgin Islands taxpayers are concerned about government projects with untested partners from abroad. Trying to answer our questions about the Anagata project led me down several winding paths, including researching hundreds of pages of corporate records, tax filings, and court documents, and interviewing more than a dozen people over the course of six months. So what were your first steps to get the ball rolling on this whole reporting process? The first thing I did was interview as many bidders as possible about their experience working with BVIEC and DNVGL, a Norwegian headquartered firm hired to consult on the bidding process. Okay, and how did that go? Were you able to track them down? It went well. Of five teams that bid in total, I was easily able to get hold of Mr. Creaky and representatives from two of the other losing bidders. They all gave me long, comprehensive interviews and two of them also shared some of their exchanges with the DNVGL email address that was used extensively during the bidding process. All three losing bidders shared similar concerns about the process, which I think is why they are all so willing to speak with me. They all felt that the tender process, which seems to have been managed largely by DNVGL, lacked transparency and they all questioned its fairness. Mr. Creaky also alleged that the bidding process diverged from the usual practice in the territory. 
Were those allegations accurate? I mean, did the process really diverge from the usual practice? To check that claim, I then interviewed Neil Smith, a former financial secretary. When talking to him, I reconstructed the tender process as Mr. Creaky had described it to me. Mr. Smith agreed that it didn't seem to align with standard tendered procedures used in the territory, including procedures outlined in the 2005 Public Finance Management Regulations. The process also departed from the BVIEC's usual practice for awarding major contracts. Typically in the past, the utility has required offers to be submitted in sealed envelopes and opened in public. This time, it asked bidders to email them to the DNVGL email address. That is quite different. It sounds like you started to get an understanding of the tender process pretty quickly. But a lot of your story focuses on Rob Wallace Jr., the founder of Power 52 Clean Energy Access. And you dive deeply into his past, including the legal and financial troubles he's faced over the past decade. How did that piece of the article come about? That took longer. When I first started reporting on the story, most of what I knew about Rob Wallace came from Mr. Wallace himself. By the time he was awarded the Anagata contract last June, he and the Power 52 brand were already familiar in the Virgin Islands. In January 2020, he and Ray Lewis, who listeners might know as a retired Baltimore Ravens linebacker and an NFL Hall of Famer, visited the territory to announce a training program at H. Lapty Stout Community College through which residents could become certified solar technicians. At a press conference, Mr. Wallace and Mr. Lewis recounted the history of Power 52, a Maryland nonprofit organization they founded in 2015 with Mr. Wallace's then wife, Cherie Brooks. They described the endeavor, which was rebranded as Power 52 Foundation in 2017. As a way to lift disadvantaged residents of their city out of poverty and crime by offering a gateway to work in the solar sector. In other words, Mr. Wallace painted himself as a socially conscious businessman bringing his talents to the territory. But when his Power 52 branded company was publicly awarded the $4.6 million Anagata contract six months later, I wanted to delve deeper. Okay, I see. So, how did you begin to uncover the allegations against Mr. Wallace that you talk about in your article? That was thanks to our editor, Freeman Rogers, who realized that Maryland's court system has an online database. When we searched this online database and got several hits on Mr. Wallace, we began to get a broad idea that he had some lawsuits in his past. That sounds like a pretty interesting find. It was. And we felt that Virgin Islands taxpayers would want to know if a bidder about to receive millions of their dollars had a history of legal troubles. So we were beginning to understand that this could be an important story. But the new information also presented a new challenge because we now had to figure out the story behind these various lawsuits. I can imagine that was a pretty daunting task. How did you begin doing it? It was daunting indeed. The first problem was technical. The Maryland Judicial Database listed the dockets of various cases involving Mr. Wallace and Power 52, but these contained only basic information. To actually understand the lawsuits, we had to get our hands on hundreds of pages of documents filed away at two different Maryland courthouses. Being in the Virgin Islands, this was a challenge exacerbated by the pandemic, as you can imagine. I called the courthouse to ask if there was any way to access these documents remotely. 
and I was told there wasn't. We either could have had them sent here through snail mail, which could have taken months, or we could send someone to pick them up in person. So I reached out to a journalism professor at the University of Maryland who connected me with two students who agreed to pull the documents and email them to us. Once we had these documents, I spent a few weeks just reading through the different cases and wrapping my mind around them. Like all court cases, they were written in difficult to understand legalese, so this process took some time. In the end, what did the process show you? We found that Mr. Wallace and various Power 52 entities were hit with at least seven lawsuits over the past 11 years, four of which alleged fraud and many of which alleged unpaid debts. Six named Mr. Wallace as a defendant and four named Cherie Brooks, who finalized a divorce from Mr. Wallace last July. None named Ray Lewis, the third Power 52 founder. Although Mr. Wallace and Ms. Brooks often deny the allegations in court filings, judges typically sided with their accusers. Since 2014, courts have ordered Mr. Wallace to pay more than $1.2 million to people who allege that he defrauded them, broke his contracts, and refused to pay his bills, among other alleged misconduct sometimes associated with work similar to the project he was contracted to carry out on Anagata. Other cases are ongoing. And in the midst of these lawsuits, Mr. Wallace has also run into tax trouble. In 2019, his for-profit firm, Power52 Energy Solutions, was hit with at least five tax liens totaling almost $168,000. That October, the Maryland Comptroller forfeited the firm because of the outstanding taxes. Okay, so once you got those documents, what came after that? Well, of course documents only tell part of the story. So I also set about trying to call the people who had sued Mr. Wallace and Power 52 entities. Here I had some luck as well, and not surprisingly, they didn't have great things to say. Of course, I also tried to call Mr. Wallace and other Power 52 partners and employers, as well as BVIEC officials, Premier Andrew Foy, Attorney General Don Smith, the current and former financial secretary, farmers who had worked with Power 52 to build solar panels on their land, an accountant who had registered many of Mr. Wallace's businesses, Maryland public officials, and others. Meanwhile, we also continued combing through other public documents in Maryland, including incorporation records, tax filings submitted by Power 52's nonprofit arm, reports from the Maryland Department of Labor, and many others. We took all of this information and put it into a timeline, which later helped us to tell the story in a format that we hope is clear and engaging. When it was time for you to start writing the article, how did you go about condensing all of this reporting into a single narrative? It was tough, and again, I worked closely with Freeman on how to present our findings in the manner that is most concise and of interest to our readers. Through many, many, many revisions, Freeman helped me couch the story of Mr. Wallace's bid for the Anagata project and his troubles with Power 52 in a broader context. One that includes allegations of fraud even before he launched the Power 52 brand. We worked to make the story as Virgin Island-centric as possible, trimming a lot from it, including a detailed recounting of the Power 52 Foundation's finances. Finally, we undertook an arduous fact-checking process. Going through each line of my story and the different sidebars, we checked each claim we made against the source documentation. 
I'm guessing it was ready to publish by then, right? Yeah, it was. But then we got a big surprise. By Friday, February 26th, the story was laid out and ready for print the following week. And that's when I got a WhatsApp message from Rob Wallace saying he wanted to speak with me. At that point, I had been requesting an interview from him for several months with no response. Never, nevertheless, to be fair, we decided to hold the story for a week in order to include his perspective. This delay was inconvenient, but we also knew that the interview would make the article stronger and more balanced. So, Mr. Wallace and I met for a two-hour-long interview at Trellis Bay and had three additional briefer phone conversations after that. Mr. Wallace was very open and forthcoming, which I appreciated very much. In the interviews, he strongly denied most of the allegations against him in seven lawsuits over the past 11 years, saying they stemmed from a small fraction of his projects, the vast majority of which he claimed were successful. He admitted owing money to some litigants and two tax authorities, but said that most of these debts stemmed from an unexpected change in a local tax code in Maryland and that they will all be fully paid off very soon. He also maintained that his legal troubles will soon be behind him and that they had instilled in him a resolve and a vision crucial to his VI endeavors. He assured me that he has many years of experience in the solar energy field and that he is fully prepared to complete the Anagata project and excited to get started. Did he talk at all about the tender process for the Anagata project? He did. He provided a stark counterpoint to the three losing bidders who spoke to me, saying that he found it to be a well-run and fair process. And what about the BVIEC officials? Did they ever give you interviews? Unfortunately, no. In spite of months of requests, I never got an interview with BVIEC Chairwoman, Chairwoman Rosemarie Flax or BVIEC General Manager Leroy Abraham. Similarly silent was Premier Andrew Foy, who had described the bidding process last year in the House of Assembly as thorough, transparent, and rigorous. So if you could interview those three people right now, what would you ask them? Plenty. Before awarding a contract with public money, government entities should always carry out a very thorough due diligence process. So I would first ask what due diligence they carried out on Power 52 Clean Energy Access. Did they know about Rob Wallace's legal troubles and debt? Do they think it's a good idea to give $4.6 million in taxpayer money to someone with such a history and why? I would also ask about specific details of the tender process and why the BVIEC skirted the usual procedures. I would ask if they have any regrets about sidelining two Virgin Islands companies in favor of a foreign bidder during the COVID-19 pandemic when so many local businesses are struggling. Mr. Wallace also mentioned that the BVIEC hasn't finalized this contract yet, so I would ask about this delay and request a copy of the contract. And, of course, I would ask when ground will be broken and when the people of Anagata will get the solar plant that has been promised for nearly a decade. Well, Joey, I hope you get a chance to ask those questions sometime soon. This has all been very interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for having me on the podcast. My pleasure. Listeners who haven't read the story yet can check it out on our March 11th, 2021 print edition and online at bvibeacon.com. That's it for our fourth episode. Thanks for listening to The Wave.